This is the Eye on Potatoes, brought to you by the National Potato Council. The Eye is the place to tune in for conversations with growers and thought leaders on advocacy, production, and all things potatoes. Now, here's your host, Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to more conversations here on the Eye on Potatoes podcast. I'm Lane Nordland, and of course, I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor of the podcast, Syngenta. Thank you so much to their continued support of the potato industry and the Eye on Potatoes podcast. Well, there was over 170 National Potato Council members out in Washington, D.C. for the annual Washington Summit. The annual meeting of the MPC combined with the fly-in all taking place under one roof. And folks were able to be boots on the ground as well, meeting with elected officials, their staff and agency leaders as well, really bringing so many issues to the limelight that impact farmers out in the countryside. And for many years, participants of this event have had the opportunity to look at the political situation and landscape by the one and only Charlie Cook with the Cook Political Report. Charlie, we last spoke back in 2020. Last year, Amy Walter with the report joined us as well, and, and we uh, we talked a lot about what the uh, 2022 election, what was in store with that. But uh, So it's been a few years since you've been able to rejoin uh, potato producers here. Uh, uh, why do you enjoy coming back every year and being able to just uh, fill producers in that are coming in from all over the nation on, on, on the political landscape? You know, one thing that's fun is if it's if a group has many of them have heard you before, they kind of get who you are, they kind of get what you do, and uh, you can kind of launch straight on in. It's not uh, there's not sort of the breaking in. Who is this guy? What's his story? Uh, so it's always a, a lot of fun. And I've uh, uh, I apologize to someone earlier that I um, uh, we're doing a renovation, so I was not able to bring one of my potato ties that uh, that I have. That I'm very proud of. They're actually very attractive ties. And <laughs> I've had people go up within six inches and say what. What are those? Are those potatoes? <laughs> anyway, but thanks for having me on, Mike. No, happy to have you here, of course. And in just a little bit, you will uh, address the attendees here during our luncheon. But as I mentioned, we last spoke back in February 2020, and uh, the world changed about two weeks later. And I was just listening to that conversation, that just how the COVID-19 pandemic really changed the, the political landscape, the lives uh, of not only Americans, but people around the world. But I, I, uh, listening to that, Bernie Sanders was the front runner for, for a lot of people, for the Democratic nominee for president. And then the world shut down. Uh, people's lives changed. Um, what, uh, reflecting back on that, uh, again, that was such a black swan event. What, uh, what was your reaction watching that uh, just in the days, weeks, and just how, how the world truly, we woke up and it did change? You know, as much as the coronavirus pandemic changed all of our lives on a day-to-day basis, it really didn't affect the election that much. I mean, there were weird things that happened in that election, yes. but I don't think they were coronavirus related. And, and I might add, uh, you could say the same thing about the war in Ukraine, that uh, uh, it really hasn't changed as important as it is. It hasn't really changed the political trajectory. But to me, in, to, in 2020, what was going on was um, – Democrats had, you know, you have sort of the progressive side, the more liberal side of the party, and then you have sort of the little somewhat less progressive. The Bernie Sanders had eclipsed Elizabeth Warren and was consolidating the left lane. Uh, and given the delegate selection rules that Democrats had, 
uh, have. It, it uh, looked like he had a pretty clear line to win the nomination because the less progressive lane was split a dozen different ways with Mike Bloomberg getting into the race right then. So I think that you saw, and, and Democrats aren't always terribly pragmatic, but they, uh, they looked at the situation and thought, you know, I'm not sure Bernie Sanders is the uh, optimal candidate. And you saw them uh, almost spontaneously pull behind Joe Biden, who had come in fourth place in Iowa and fifth place in New Hampshire. Um, it was one of the darndest things we've ever seen. And it wasn't like uh, leaders in a back room got together because it, it really kind of happened almost organically. Um, although certainly uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn endorsing uh, uh, Biden just before the South Carolina primary was certainly uh, important. Well, then obviously we've we moved into the 2022 election cycle and uh, there was a lot of people in, in the countryside that really thought a red wave w- was going to occur. Obviously, that, that that is not what played out. But the 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 slim majority that the Republicans have in the House and, and the Democrats holding on to the majority in the Senate. Uh, what what is your feel on that? Uh, looking at what some people's expectations were with that red wave and, and how will that uh, play out possibly in the twenty twenty four election? Well, I mean, if you think about it, in two thousand twenty. There was an anticipated blue wave that turned into the Dead Sea. And then in 2022, there was expected to be a red wave, although I never used that term, but I thought it was going to be a real good year for Republicans. And, and I think what, 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 I, and what I'm planning to tell the folks this afternoon is that effectively we have two parties that are about 45% each, whether you say people that consider themselves Democrats or lean Democrat and vote that way 80% of the time, or uh, consider themselves Republicans or lean Republican 80% of the time, so that the real breakdown of the electorate is like 45, 45, 10, which means that each party starts off, nationally speaking, about five points out of a majority. And because there are very few defections, very few Democrats or Democratic leaners will ever vote Republican anymore, and the same thing for Republicans and Republican leaners, uh, this small little shift of that 10% in the middle can have huge consequences. So small numbers of votes, big policy consequences, uh, because uh, we now have a mentality in each party that uh, no win is too small to declare mandate. And so Republicans, after the 2016 election, when um, they just sort of barely won and actually lost a popular vote, uh, they Republicans saw that as a mandate to do a lot of major tax cuts. And Democrats in 2020, uh, again, just barely winning, uh, see that as a mandate to do big historic transformational change. When, to me, when... Uh, there are no landslides possible under the new consideration, therefore no mandates. Therefore, you know, when a new president comes in, it's like they're given a credit card. But what the uh, credit limit is depends on the size of the victory in the presidential race, the majorities in the House and the Senate. So that right now, the only mandate that either party can have is for incremental change and striking balances. But that's not what what's going on, whether it's Republicans in control or Democrats in control. Now, all eyes were on Georgia in both the 2020 and the 2022 election. Uh, we saw Georgia's governor receive 
tens of thousands more votes than the Republican Senate candidate. Uh, can you walk us through that and what and, and what the polls could be with, with some of these voters of, again, they're voting for a Republican on the same ticket and voting for a Democrat down the list? Well, I'll be focus on Georgia and then pull back. You had nine Republicans running statewide in Georgia. Eight out of nine won. And that the eight that won included two that the the governor and the secretary of state, two Republicans that, that former President Trump had campaigned against in the primary. So eight out of nine win. The only one that lost was Herschel Walker. But we saw, nationally speaking, if you look at the overall Republican vote, Republicans got 10, it's a, there were 10 million fewer Democratic votes than in the previous midterm. There were 3 million more Republican votes than in the previous midterm. Nationally speaking, Republicans did fine, but there were about two, three dozen key House, Senate, governor's races where Republicans had a choice and nominated the wrong candidate. And they kind of got a little over their skis and nominating candidates that were able and did in fact seize vic- uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. And uh, they tended to be very kind of, they, I mean, weren't just Republicans, they were MAGA oriented. They were often either recruited by former President Trump or closely embraced the, the MAGA agenda. And they simply underperformed sort of other more traditional Republicans and lost governor's races, Senate races in a lot of really key contests uh, in a year where otherwise Republicans were doing fine. We'll have more with Charlie Cook after this. Syngenta cares about potato producer productivity and offers a wide variety of seed treatment options protecting your investment from the beginning. Syngenta's all-liquid seed treatment Cruiser Max Vibrance Potato offers protection from harmful insect pests including Colorado potato beetle, green peach aphid, and leafhoppers. Additionally, Cruiser Max Vibrance Potato delivers immediate protection against fungal diseases. Contact your local retailer for information on Cruiser Max Vibrance Potato, Cruiser Max Potato Extreme, or Maxim MZ to find Find out what best fits your farm needs. So obviously that leads us into the 2024 election. There's there's a lot up in the air of who will be the Republican nominee. What impact will former President Trump have? Will he get the nomination? How will that impact the other federal races on the, uh, in, in states as well? Uh, I, I guess, what what is the D.C. talk about that? Well, I mean, there's a, uh, first of all, nobody knows what's going to happen, okay? And, and uh uh, politics has always been unpredictable, and the last uh, four uh, four elections have been particularly so. Uh, but uh, the, first of all, the interesting thing is if there is a Biden-Trump rematch, it will be the seventh rematch in American history, but the first one since 1956. Fewer than a third of Americans want President Biden to run again. Fewer than a third of Americans want Donald Trump to run again. So it, it, it could be a rematch that uh, most people aren't really looking for. Um, in terms of former President Trump, if you, if you just ask, uh, give a list of eight, nine names, five, six, eight, nine names, uh, he will come out ahead but almost every single time below 50 and sometimes like below 40 uh, with the non-Trump split umpteen different ways. 
But a lot of times if you measure, give it down to Trump versus an alternative, the alternative is often winning or running about even with former President Trump. And, you know, I think the Republican electorate, you could say there's about 30, 35 percent nationally that are with him forever. And there are no circumstances that they will abandon him. There's about 10 percent that are never Trumpers. They never were for him. They never will be. They're pretty fixed. You've got 50 or 55 percent that voted for him twice, many of them, uh, supported his policies, would have no problem with him being president again, but they wonder whether he's damaged goods or whether he's passed his sell-by date or whether some other candidate, Republican candidate, perhaps with the same policy positions but a different personality, might, might be better. And, and that while in the old days electability was only important with like political insiders, Nowadays, with this hyper-partisanship and what they call negative partisanship, where you've got um, there's a decent slice of people in each party that hate the other party, the other party's leaders, candidates, voters, more than they even like their own. And so suddenly electability is more of an issue than it used to be because they can't fathom the idea if you're a Republican, let's say, of Joe Biden winning a second term or Kamala Harris getting elected or Elizabeth Warren or whoever. Uh, and that's kind of what you saw for Democrats in 2020. They were so appalled at the idea of Donald Trump getting reelected that they pulled behind a candidate that had already lost presidential races twice before and had come in fourth place in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. Um, so that um, our, our politics have just changed a lot in the last 20, 30 years. And with that change, what, uh, what, what when, how uh, will, the, will President Biden, when will he make that official announcement? Uh, what, what, what is the talk with uh, leaders in the Democratic Party on, on what that is and, and who could possibly be his uh, predecessor in, in seeking the nomination? Well, I think there's a... Success, successor, excuse me, so, in yeah, seeking yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, to be honest, I, I'm a little surprised that if he runs again, and it looks like he probably will, I'm kind of surprised. And, uh, you know, when you're going to be 82 at the end of uh, uh, at the end of the current term, and would be 86 at the end of a second term, um, you know, that's. Uh, this is an unusual situation, but um, it sure looks like he's going to run. I don't think he will have a major opponent, uh, even though there are a lot of Democrats that would rather see somebody else, but they like Biden. They just, and they, a lot of times they agree with a lot of what he's done, but they just think he's too old. But they're not going to jump ship, and they know what happens when sitting presidents are challenged for their nomination. You know, we've had four times in a row, you know, that uh, uh, going back to 1992 with Pat Buchanan running against George H.W. Bush, a president that gets really challenged for the nomination, that party will lose the presidency one way uh, or, or, the, or the other. Um, so... Um, it, it sure looks like Biden's going to run, and the guessing is that he will probably announce it maybe in April, something like that. Um, and then you'll see, I think, a big field of Republicans. But 
um, the key thing on the Republican side is that uh, Republicans pick their delegates completely differently than Democrats do. And after the first three primaries, caucuses, whatever, um, those are done proportionally, which is the way Democrats do. But after that, it's mostly winner-take-all or winner-take-most, so that a candidate that's winning 35 38 percent of the vote in a state, and if that's the most, they oftentimes will get 100 percent or close to 100 percent of the delegates. So that once you get past the first three states, the more the more rival, non-Trump Republicans are in the field, the higher his chances are of getting real of winning the nomination. So they so the anti-Trump side needs they need it to get down to one real fast if if they're going to stop him. Now, <clears throat> you, you you spoke about the primaries. We've heard a lot about, of course, some changes in some of the first primaries that happen. Uh, what uh, what are some of the frustrations that uh, maybe uh, politicians have versus the Democratic Party, especially with that New Hampshire primary that, uh, that has been a staple in the history of primaries? Yeah, well, when you've got someone that's run for president twice before and lost and never did well in Iowa, never did well in New Hampshire, you know, Joe Biden has no love lost for either of those two states. And remember, it was South Carolina that effectively got him the nomination. So uh, what's happening in those three states, for example, it's not exactly random, um, but they are very different. You know, the, the, within the Democratic Party, Iowa, New Hampshire coming first was always controversial because they're both very heavily white states, not diverse at all, don't look like the rest of the country. But there's a big difference between Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa, now for the first time in probably 50 years, has an entirely Republican House and Senate delegation. That state has gone red. And so Democrats at the party don't really owe them the time of day. But New Hampshire is a swing state. And right this moment, Democrats have both senators and both House members. So for Democrats to stick it to New Hampshire, uh, that's a pretty bold move that um, personally I think is pretty short-sighted because it it's not a big state, but it sure is a swing state. Now, uh, obviously, we're going to be looking at the Senate as well in that upcoming election. And just thinking about agriculture, uh, you have Michigan's Senator Debbie Stabenow, uh, the chairman of the Senate Agriculture Committee. She'll be, you know, hopefully finishing up a farm bill and, and uh, you know, going out on a high note, as some people would describe it. Then you look further west, the state of Montana, with Senator John Tester. Um, Montana used to be a pretty purple state. Uh, they just picked up a new uh, House seat as well. So for, for since the, the late 90s, they've only had one House member. Now they're two and very close race, but both are held by Republicans. There's one uh, U.S. senator that's Republican, a governor senator after 16 years of Democrats. How, how, how are races like that? How, how may Montana's race with, with, a, with one of the longest-serving senators now in, in the U.S. Senate going up against somebody? And uh, then we look at uh, a leader in, in the ag community retiring there in Michigan. Let me, let me uh, folk answer the Montana part of your question first and then pull the lens back. In Montana, if, if uh, Senator Tester, uh, who is a, a rancher, if, if he were not he, running— He's a farmer. Farmer. I'm, I, I'm a rancher over I, there. He's a I, farmer. I, I, 
My father grew up on a hundred acre farm. It wasn't a ranch in South Arkansas. So, uh, but I, so I should have, uh, I should have made that distinction. But, he, he would have corrected me if I would have called him a rancher. So, so uh, he doesn't live too far from where I live. Yeah, it, it's uh, uh, if he had not run. I would say Democrats could probably kiss the seat goodbye, although the former governor, Steve Bullock, might be able to give it a chance. But, you know, Montana's gotten, as you said, very, very, very red. And so uh, there are a lot of a lot of states where Democrats desperately need their incumbents to run and that those incumbents are, would still have tough races, but they'd be kind of goners without. But the numbers in the Senate are really, really imposing. Uh, overall, uh, as you know, uh, there are 51 Democrats, 49 Republicans. But in the class of senators that are up in 2024, you have 23 Democrats up and only 11 Republican seats up. But of the 23 Democratic seats that are up, seven of them are in states that Donald Trump carried at least once. There are zero Republican seats up that either Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden won. And of those seven Republican seats that or seven Democratic seats that are up that Trump carried at least once, well, three out of the four, he or three out of the seven, he carried twice, you know, and Montana, Montana being being one of those. Uh, West Virginia is another. And um, I'm blanking out on the on the third. But um, it uh, uh, Democrats, I, I I'm, I'm leery to say that de- it would take a miracle for Democrats to hold on to their majority in the Senate. So I'll just go with near miracle because um, the numbers are that they shouldn't. But if Republicans nominate exotic candidates in key races again, it's possible that they do not win a majority in the Senate, but they probably will. And Joe Manchin has definitely been one of those uh, U.S. senators that uh, has has a lot of leverage, what um, one could say, in the Senate chambers. Uh, what, there's talk about a presidential bid possibly by him. That, 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 that was talk, I know, months ago, but whatnot. what not. How, how will Joe Manchin play uh, a role, and, uh, and what is his political future? I, well, I, I don't know what... Um, and I have a, a lot of admiration for Senator Manchin, but I'm not sure there is a party that he could win a presidential nomination because I'm real sure it's not Democrats and I'm real sure it's not Republicans and not familiar enough with some of the other parties. That are out. He's not much of a libertarian. So, uh, uh, I, you know, that's not going to happen. But, um, you know, once once Joe Manchin's gone, I do not expect to see a Democrat elected to the House or Senate from West Virginia in my lifetime. And even if God told me I was going to live to 110, I still I still would go with that state. Or it would take a really perverse set of circumstances because that state has just gotten ruby red. But um, he obviously had more leverage when the Senate's 50-50. But even with a 51-49 Senate, um, he has a, a whole lot of, of leverage and um, um, you know, you've got, uh, you know, a handful of senators um, in, in each party that are decisive and the rest of them, you know exactly what they're going to do no matter what. Well, Charlie, I know you got to get uh, here to, to your, your main keynote address here at lunch here at the uh, National Potato Council's Washington Summit. Just uh, any, any last thoughts you'd just like to share with the, the, the producers and those that tune into this uh, podcast? It's just how narrowly divided we are as a country, how 
few, few, few. I mean, Joe Biden is president by because of fewer than 126,000 votes scattered across four states. You know, uh, Donald Trump was president by because of fewer than 78,000 votes that were scattered across three states. Republicans in the House, they have a majority, but only with 6,700 votes to spare in five congressional districts. And Democrats just barely held on to the House in 2020. So very, very small shifts of votes have huge policy consequences. And while an evenly divided country would suggest that we ought to have look for incremental policy changes as opposed to bold in your face that just do little more than just completely tick off the other party uh, for overreaching. So uh, we're at a we're at an odd place in American politics, that's for sure. But, uh, uh, you know, since I first started uh, talking to the potato folks, I've lost 100 pounds, but I've not given up. Uh, I haven't given up potatoes. And uh, <laughs> I know I've got a baked one in my future tonight for dinner with the steak. Well, uh, uh, Charlie Cook, thank you so much for joining us here today and, and for your continued uh, participation in uh, what is now the National Potato Council's Washington Summit. Thank you for joining us here today. My pleasure, Lane. That will do it for today's Eye on Potato podcast conversation. I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the National Potato Council's Eye on Potatoes podcast with host Lane Nordland. For more information, visit nationalpotatocouncil.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.